Vibrations Podcast, Part 15, Pat Lawrence. Hi, I'm Gary Brightman, and this is my weekly podcast called Vibrations. Established in 2018, Vibe is a book and music shop situated in Moiwo on Lantau Island in Hong Kong. Things have quietened down after Christmas, and we're now taking in more donations than we're selling. Again. I don't wish to sound ungrateful, but... Donations must be agreed with me in the first instance. My decisions are based on the books, DVDs, CDs, vinyl, games and jigsaws being of a good quality and the genres I know I can sell. So I'm offering more books for free and selected fiction novels at $25 each or 5 for $100. There's a great choice of CDs and DVDs these days also. A reminder that we have a healthy stock of t-shirts, polo shirts and tote bags with many different designs. We now offer a Vibe audio bring-in repair service through my old friend Mike Higgins. It covers audio products such as amplifiers, tape decks, CD player and record players. All repairs are subject to the following. A minimum charge of $250 deductible from the final bill. The reason being that the investigation of a problem takes time and skill. The availability of spare parts. The minimum turnover time is three to five working days, excluding Sundays and public holidays. Vibe is just acting as a drop-off area in this scenario, so happy for you to contact Mike directly if you wish on 64611880. I have a waiting list of book talks and live music for Vibe, but so far this year it's not been possible to plan any due to Covid restrictions. Please bear with us, and safety is always our first consideration. For this week's interview, we continue with my colonial ex-Hong Kong policeman, and this week my good friend Pat Lawrence steps into Vibe for an intensive grilling. Pat joined the Royal Hong Kong Police in July 1974 and worked in a variety of policing work and locations for more than 20 years until June 1997. Born in Ireland in 1948 but growing up in England, Pat travelled the world as a child, being the son of a military family. Prior to coming to Hong Kong and joining the Royal Hong Kong Police, Pat served six and a half years in the British Police. In Hong Kong, Lawrence's duty posts range from initially uniformed branch to, in the main, CID for the rest of his service. Following his initial spell at Central Police Division in March 1975, after his graduation from police training, he served in the Commercial Crime Bureau and then from 1980 on in Kowloon region, posted to CID and served as a senior inspector, chief inspector and superintendent in districts as diverse as Wong Tai Sin, Yamete, Mong Kok and Kowloon City. A brief interlude in his CID postings came in 1987 when he was given the command of the Sai Kung and Clearwater Bay Police Divisions for a year, thus experiencing a totally different style of police work and indeed work more akin to a country copper, albeit the one in charge. After a return to CID in 1989, he was eventually posted in 1992 to the security wing of the old RHKP Special Branch, where work entailed international liaison and travel in Southeast Asia. Pat served there until his retirement in 1997. Pat is married and has a daughter and a grandson who live in San Francisco. So, welcome to Vibe, Pat. Thanks, Gary. Nice place, books, records. Thank nice you. to see it in a place like Lantau. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
as we do, we'll start off with 10 quickfire questions. Uh, the first question is, um, what's your favourite book or author? Well, my favourite book, having lived in Hong Kong for so long, would be one which um, relates to colonial life in the 50s and 60s, one by a, a chap called Austin Coates, who was a, a district officer, okay, a councillor, or head of the councillors. And um, he wrote a book called Myself a Mandarin, and it's about him who he used to stand as a magistrate as well right. in various parts right. of uh, the colony. And I think that gives a, a good insight uh, into life in colonial days, especially for people who have experienced colonial days or post-colonial days or one or the other and want to get a glimpse of what it was like in those days. Next question. Um, Favourite musical artist? Oh, without doubt, The Who. Yeah. I okay. mean, I, I grew up on the outskirts of London. Um, before my time in the UK police, I was, uh, I was a mod. And uh, I had a scooter, a Lambretta, 175, with the, complete with first seat, squirrel tails, uh, spotlights, chrome side panels. And, you know, we followed the Who round the south of uh, England. The Who were the mod band, the Target T-shirts, etc. My Generation, what a song, yeah. talking about my generation. So it has to be the Who. And they're also the best band I've seen live. Fabulous band, punchy, yeah. noisy. Phonetic, yeah. exciting. And um, preferred drink? Well, it's got to be San Miguel, Hong Kong. Hong Kong, San Miguel. Not Philippine San Miguel, although that's good also. Because it's the first drink uh, we were exposed to when we came to Hong Kong. In fact, it was the only one available then, basically, over here. I think we could get uh, a couple of other little ones, but uh, San Miguel. And it had to be out of a brown bottle. And that reminds me of an old boss... Uh, who is quite famous in the police force, who uh, actually refused to drink any San Miguel out of anything other than a brown bottle. And if you gave him a green bottle of San Miguel, he'd <laughs> virtually hit you over the head with it. He used to get really, really angry. OK, um, do you have a life motto? A life motto would be, you're a long time in the box. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so basically, uh, make the most of life. Uh, don't procrastinate. And you're certainly a testament to that, absolutely. Well, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. OK, um, now, this, is, this might be quite hard for you because I know, and this is, we do a lot of walking together. What is your favourite Hong Kong walk? I'll have to say it's uh, the um, north-east of the New Territories. Um, it'd be the Starling Inlet, Crooked Harbour and Double Haven. Now, those places are absolutely outstanding. Uh, they remind me of the Bay of Islands in New Zealand and many other exotic locations around the world. Okay. And basically you start at the village of Wukau Tang and you walk the coastline till you go through Lychee War, a very old um, ancient village which is full yeah. of history, and uh, up over the hills to uh, finishing off at uh, Luk Gang. The thing about those villages are they're still only accessible by boat <laughs> or by footpath. How long uh, roughly is that walk? I would say it's probably about um, three and a half to four hours. Okay. Three and a half to four hours. So maybe, what, 15 kilometres or something like about that? About 15 perhaps. kilometres. Yeah, yeah. But you can always stop halfway at Lychee War, have a look round the uh, village itself. And do you have a favourite Hong Kong restaurant? Cook food stalls. Yeah. Basically, cook food stalls are 
what Hong Kong is about eating. Um, I can eat great Western food in London or anywhere I go in the world, but uh, to sit at a cooked food stall in, La- yeah. in um, Hong Kong, anywhere in Hong Kong with the full mica tables, hot, good food cooked in front of you with a cold San Miguel on a warm evening, I think that, that is... What it. could be better? That is great. Yeah. That is great. And we've done a lot of that with you, actually. It's and great. Always good. The Dai Pai Dongs, basically, which are... Yep. Sadly dying out. Whenever I've had um, visitors over to Hong Kong, taking them out, even restaurateur friends of mine from London, what they've enjoyed most has not been taken out to the uh, more glam Western restaurants. Yeah. They've really enjoyed sitting down at Formica tables at cooked food stalls yeah. and uh, eating especially seafood Yeah, and uh, drinking cold beer. And so the quality is outstanding, isn't it? The quality is outstanding. Uh, and of course, it's a shame that they're diminishing now Yeah. in number. Um, in Mui War, you still have some, which are very good. Yeah. But uh, when I first came here, it was a standard eating practice for locals it, all, over the pl- all over the colony. Um, in fact, when I was posted at Yama Day um, in Kowloon, we would often go out at midnight, go down Temple Street. Yeah, yeah. And eat uh, eat at cooked food stores and drink beer there. So here's a slightly off the wall question for you: Faced with a python whilst walking up to the peak, what would you do? I would just stop, look at it, and let it go on its way. Um, I have experienced a lot of snakes mm. because in 1986 I was the divisional commander of the divisional commander of Sai Kung Police okay. Division, and of course. Uh, a daily occurrence there was the um, snakes being brought in. Oh, yeah. People reported snakes, and you'd see these... You'd look out of my office window into the, the courtyard of the station, and you'd see these um, huge, quite often 12-foot Burmese pythons... Wow. Uh, ..bringing up what they couldn't uh, absorb. And, uh, of course, the snake catchers would be, would be called to take them away. What was the best advice you were given? Basically, to get on with it, um, if you're offered an opportunity, uh, don't prevaricate, go for it. And certainly, when I came to Hong Kong in 1974, I was actually thinking about coming in 1972, but I put it off for two years. And I decided to come in 1974, and I'm so glad that I didn't beat around the bush, and I decided, you know, I just made up the decision to uproot from the UK, friends, family, and my job, as a police officer there, and to relocate 5,000 miles from home, uh, 24-hour plane journey, to a place which was uh, completely alien, really. Yeah. A whole new way of life. But uh, once we got here, once I got here, um, as we used to say to each other after the first year, it's the best-kept secret in the world, don't tell anyone. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And you've said that to me many (laughs) times. Finish this sentence. I live in Hong Kong because... I think Hong Kong, everybody says it's safe. It is very safe, that's one reason. But it's also super efficient. Yeah. I think it's one of the most efficient places that I've been to. It's also um, accessible. Yeah. It's accessible if you live in Hong Kong, you've got access to the mountains. I love walking. You've got access to all parts of uh, the territory within... uh, Basically, not more than an hour to get anywhere. Yeah. Because of the superb public transport, the safety issue is good because um, you can walk around the streets and uh, 
not feel any fear at all. It's, it's also um, an easy place to live. And final question, uh, favourite area of Hong Kong? Favourite area of Hong Kong would be, as a whole, Lantau Island. In fact, after my retirement, and we went back to London because my wife was working for an airline company and she was based out of London, but um, we came back to Hong Kong to live half the time and we decided to live in Lantau. We are planning to come back to Hong Kong to live um, this year, later this year, and the choice will be Lantau. Lantau I like because it's an escape from the city. You can go into the city anytime you want, have fun, get the buzz, but you can come 25 minute ferry ride and you're onto Lantau Island where you can walk, you can eat. It's peaceful, it's quiet, Anywhere else in the world, as I tell friends, this would be the prime place to live. Yeah. People yeah. would commute yes. from Lantau to Central to work. Yeah. Or to other parts of Hong Kong to work. Yeah. And they would come back here to their families and live the lifestyle. Yeah. But in Hong Kong, it's not like that. It's 1974. You're in the UK working for the UK police and you decide to come to Hong Kong. What, what brought that about? I enjoyed my six and a half years in the UK police very much, but 1973-74 was the first winter of discontent in the UK, I remember. It was doom and gloom, the economy was terrible, the miners were on strike, you had to turn your lights off and the power off at 10.25 at night. Yeah. Um, and I remember Ted Heath coming on the TV at Christmas and saying this will be the hardest Christmas you've ever experienced since, since the war. I also used to see um, in the Police Gazette in the UK uh, adverts for the Royal Hong Kong Police and yeah. also publications like the Sunday Times, Sunday mm. Express would say jet to adventure or 2am <laughs> is a fine time for self-discovery in Kowloon. Excellent. And you see these pictures and it's like, wow, it, this looks interesting. Then a friend of mine came over to Hong Kong from my old force and used to write to me and say, what a fantastic place. So I applied and came over in July 74. So you arrive in Hong Kong, hot, sweaty Hong Kong after London in, in the mid-70s. Do you, do you then have to retrain here? How do you go about becoming a Hong Kong policeman? OK, well, in those days, to become a Hong Kong policeman, you either had to have five years in a UK police force and having passed your sergeant's exam or served as a commissioned officer, or I think it was a university degree. And then okay. you could apply to come over to Hong Kong in the Hong Royal Hong Kong Police Force. We arrived um, in July 74, it was about 34, 35 degrees, <laughs> a high humidity, into the police training school in Aberdeen. And basically straight off the plane, you had to do a two months, two or three months, full-time Cantonese course. Right. If you didn't pass that, you were sent back. That was the first test to pass that. Yeah. Following that, you did six months law and leadership. So it's okay. a total of nine months till you passed out. And that was for every overseas recruit because we used to recruit from the Commonwealth. The ah. UK, Canada, South Africa, New Zealand and Australia. Right. So it was a real, as we call Mixed. it, a foreign legion. Yeah. And our local colleagues joined us after the Cantonese course mm. for their training. Right. And they were recruited up from the ranks okay. or they joined straight from university. Yeah. 
And roughly, what what sort of percentage in those days were Western policemen versus Hong Kong policemen? Do you think? Well, my squad, if you like, yeah, of twelve, we had eight Westerners and yeah. four locals in my okay. squad. Right. So I would say there was probably a at inspectorate level. You're talking. Yeah, well, at any inspectorate level. level Oh, well, inspectorate level was about 50% because um, foreigners could only join as inspectors. Okay. And, of course, the, uh, the rank and file were all local. So everybody rank and file was local? Yep. Okay. All right. I didn't or, appreciate Or, funny enough, Pakistani. Okay. Because they recruited from Pakistan. Right. And basically, you came over here as a one-pipper. Right. You got one pip, and then after... Three years, you yeah. passed your exams in your Cantonese. You got two pips, okay. so you're a confirmed inspector. Okay. And after five years, you got a bar as well. You're a senior inspector. Yeah. As long as you passed more exams. Yeah. And kept uh, kept a clean sheet. After that, of course, it was um, progressive promotion according to your ability and according to other examinations. What What were your early challenges in those days? I'd been a month in uniform, and. Uh, the divisional superintendent came in to me and he said, oh, you're an ex-UK policeman. And I said, yes. He said, well, you're going to CID. And I said, oh. Mm. So I was packed off to CID training school <clears throat> in early 75. <laughs> yeah. And um, my first year was at Central, the old Central Police Station. Crimes investigation uh, Crimes investigation. Department. You worked 24 hours on. Yeah. And then you had two days off to follow up. Yeah. And then a day off for yourself. And then two, and, uh, 24 hours on again. So you're on call all the time. You, you slept yeah. at the police station. So you wow. stayed in the police station 24 hours. Then you went to court the next morning if you had court cases. Um, That's a tough gig <coughs> in itself, isn't it? Yeah. That, just that way of living. Yeah, of course you're younger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Central Police Station my first year. I'll never forget uh, a detective sergeant called Lam Siu Wing who was shot dead with his own gun oh. on the peak at One right. Chai Gap. Right. And he was on anti-burglary patrol um, along Middle Gap Road there. And that was a, a horrible time. Yeah, that's quite shocking, I would imagine. And then, um, yeah, so that was my introduction to uh, Central. A Central Police Station, of course, covered all the um, all of Central District, Financial District as well. Oh, OK. So you covered all of that. Yeah. You covered the peak as well. So it's quite, really. quite a big area, really. So stretching from the peak w down to the waterfront, down to the waterfront, yeah. And there were some funny things. I mean, you used to read the what they call the MRB, the report book, sometimes. Yeah. Come round, you'd see things like um, attempted suicide headline. You're going, okay, what was that? Um, Mr. Chan last night jumped into the harbour, but he was rescued. He was in a very bad mood. <laughs> Excellent. And then you'd yeah. see headlines like minor dispute over minor dispute affairs. In those mm. days, corruption had been rife in Hong Kong. Yeah. And on my arrival in Hong Kong, the ICAC was formed. OK. What does that stand for? The Independent Commission Against Corruption. Ah, OK. And that was formed to look into police corruption. And, um, in fact, several people from my intake at police training school... Mm. transferred across to ICAC. But at that time, raids on police stations were big. Yeah. And um, yeah. ICAC were very proactive and they were 
quite often you'd go into the police station you'd find maybe one, two, three people had been arrested, taken away. And this went all the way up until 1977. There was so much anger and frustration and a feeling of unfairness about the ICAC tactics that the police actually assaulted ICAT headquarters. There was a close to a total breakdown of law and order because the police were mutineering and hundreds of police officers went into police headquarters and demanded that the police commissioner at the time did something. To cut a long story short, a few months mm. later, on January the 1st, I think it was 1978, the governor of Hong Kong, Sir Murray Mackleyhouse, declared an amnesty. Ah, OK, yeah. To any bad things occurring yeah. before that date. Were wiped, the slate yeah, was wiped yeah, clean yeah. by Mackleyhouse. Basically wiped clean, yeah. Right, OK. So we're living on Lantau. Lantau is your favourite place. And do you have any stories about um, Lantau back in the day? In the early 80s, um, the uh, divisional commander of Lantau, Mike Harris, he used to organise something called the Lantau Intercity Run. <laughs> and it was a run for police only. Yeah. And it was captured at about 30 people to 50 people. Right. And you'd run from Tayo along the road to Mui War. Uh, but of course, it's also hilly. Yeah, if you remember yeah, yeah. coming out of Tayo up that first oh, it's, hill, it's all up, right? yeah, yeah, and that's this is in 32 degrees the end of September, beginning of October. <laughs> and I remember uh, the the station sergeant in charge of the logistics for the run, he wasn't running himself, was told by um, Mike Harris to make sure that there was um, urns of boiled water every five kilometres. Okay. So we could just yeah. take a drink. Yeah. Well, of course. As we got to the first 5k urn of boiling water, there it was steaming away. It was actually boiling water, not boiled water. And this so, was the way all the way along. It's just lost in translation. Yeah, yeah. So not something you can just have a quick gulp at in the, not the at heat. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, you either decide to stay there for five minutes for it to cool down. That's right. Or you carry on, don't so you? So we just carried on. And we ended, we knew at the end there'd be some cold beers. Yeah. And there were indeed cold beers. We went to the Crow's Nest Mess at uh, Cheung Sa Divisional Headquarters. Okay. And we would um, imbibe there. Good. Yeah, well, I, I would think you'd need it, actually, after, yes, yeah, after that indeed. sort of run. OK. And you've got a T-shirt at the end. You'd say that. Lantau Intercity. You made it up to CID, the Crimes Investigation uh, Department. I served most of my CID days in Kowloon. Yeah. Which I enjoyed. I worked at uh, Yamade, uh, Kowloon Headquarters, Wong Tai Sin, Mong Kok and Kowloon City. Okay. over the years. Yeah, my day was very, very taxing because um, I worked there from 1982, May 82. And, of course, Yama day was the golden triangle in Kowloon, you know, for drugs, gambling, prostitution, triad affairs, if you'd like to call it. It was a pretty complicated place. And, of course, the early to mid-80s in Hong Kong, especially in Kowloon, was a time of uh, a lot of goldsmith shop robberies, jewelry oh. shop robberies. In fact, in 85, there was the AK-47 being oh, fired yes. down Nathan Road. And this was happening on a happening a lot. Thrown together with... So you had the goldsmith shop robberies, you had a triad um, extortion, triad gang fights, 
Um, triad extortion would involve, say, if someone wasn't paying money, they'd go into the nightclub or the dance hall or the restaurant and they would smash open the um, fish tanks and let the fish go all over the place or they would just take in right. boxes and boxes of snakes and release them into the restaurant really? or, the, uh, or the dance hall or the club, yeah. And also you had just general crime in Yamaday as well. Um, so it was a, a fairly complicated place, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. I enjoyed Yamaday. Never a dull um, moment, I guess. Never a dull moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mong Kok, Kowloon headquarters, yep. Uh, Wong Tai Sin. And uh, I did one stint back in uniform when I was posted to uh, Sai Kung. Yes. As a division of yeah. Sai Kung, which I guess is not unlike Lantau. Yeah. Yeah. Um, similar stuff. A lot of expats lived there at that time. Yeah. Because, of course, Kai Tak was just <coughs> yeah, south exactly. of Sai Kung. Yeah. Uh, great majority of the experts were Cathay Pacific pilots and it was a bit like being a, a country copper. I'd sit on the district board, I'd sit on the transport board. Um, I had my own car and I used to enjoy not using a driver but driving about Saikung yeah. and the Clearwater Bay Peninsula myself and it, it was uh, interesting times. It was yeah. certainly completely different to Yamadei or Mong Kok and things like that. Yeah, was it more marine orientated did you get involved with smuggling was much of that going on in those days or no we had a marine police base um along the coast a bit and they would look after all of that yeah okay so you were purely land-based land-based um, yeah we did have um a little unit i remember called because i'm a keen walker called the village patrol unit okay and the village patrol unit's duty was a sergeant and three officers and their duty was just to patrol the hills yeah and be the government contact for the small villages that were off the beaten path. So right. they would go in, talk to the village headman, yeah. lunch, drink, and just yeah. be a contact, find out what was going on, get some local yeah. information, maybe give advice. I decided one day to go out with the sergeant mm. in charge of the village patrol unit. We went out, and after about an hour, this guy was exhausted. He couldn't walk. <laughs> <laughs> he also got lost. <laughs> so it made me wonder, what exactly does he do during the week? Yes. Is he patrolling the villages like he's supposed to or yeah. what? Yeah, or is he just sitting at home having a few exactly. jars locally? So in those days, um, maybe my decades are <clears throat> totally out here, there was the thing where you could become a Hong Kong citizen if you could get across to the boundary um, road. Was that more the 50s than the 70s? Or, or no, it's on the 70s existence? as well. It's called Touch Base. Touch Base. From China, if you came across and you were arrested in Hong Kong, you'd touch base, you'd be given an identity card yeah. without a stay. Big immigration problems um, in the uh, mid-70s. Too many people getting over the yeah. border trying to get yeah. to touch yeah. base. Yeah. How were they stopped <clears throat> in terms of getting to touch base? Would they? Is it the police that would have to stop them? There were forts which are still there. Right, yes. Along the border with China. Yes. And uh, they were manned by joint police and Gurkhas. And their duty was to patrol the border areas and arrest any illegal immigrants. So it was really those that had made it through that first barrier that then could made get... Made it from, down to the yeah, uh, uh, urban Boundary areas, road, yeah. touch base area. And I believe also that when you worked up in the Sai Kung area, it was also around the time of the Vietnamese boat people um, encampments being set up there. Yes, I mean, I listened to Les Bird's podcast recently and he, okay. he was more into the Vietnamese um, yes. issue because of his uh, work with Marine. But we had a 
Vietnamese camp in my area. Yes, a big one. Okay. Uh, Erskine camp, I think it was called. And uh, the Vietnamese were were in there. Um, we used to get the occasional breakout, but not many. Yeah. Because it was self, it was self policed. It had its own police command. It wasn't to do ah. with me basically. It was just in yeah. my area. If they escaped, of course, then it would become our yeah. our problem. Yeah. The Vietnamese um, influx was uh, was a major issue in the seventies, actually, which involved the uh, British uh, Foreign Office as well. Yes. Huge interest in what was happening here. So typically, what were the main crimes taking place up in Sai Kung area? In Sai Kung, burglary. Right. Burglary, okay. basically. Yeah. Uh, burglary and some of the villages, they had tried problems, tried issues. Yeah. Okay. Uh, burglary. And, of course, you had the occasional things like um, uh, attacks. Yeah. Attacks between uh, villagers. Uh, you had illegal gambling, of course, hidden away in some of the remote villages. And you had the general thing. A lot of uh, expats would be complaining about... Um, either strange animals in the house or coming into the garden and you'd have to send people off to that, i.e. snakes or yeah. huge millipedes or monkeys or whatever. <laughs> and a lot of... Never any tigers? A lot, no tigers. No. And a lot of stuff, uh, of course, at weekends, Cyclone became a holiday paradise, right? Right. And um, it became, I think the population sort of went up like ten times. And this would cause problems at weekends, not only with traffic, but with noise. And the noise affected a lot of um, expatriates living up there. Right. Um, naturally, so we got a lot of complaints about that, but there was nothing yeah. we could do about that. Yeah. 1997 comes. Uh, you'd been in the force 23 years, something like Here, that. Here, and six and a half in UK. And yeah. six and a half in the UK. I decided to retire because basically I'd done 30 years in the police overall. My last few years were in Security Wing, Special Branch, and that wasn't the reason I retired. Okay, Pat, so you were working in um, security uh, in Special Branch. Can you tell us anything about that work? No, unfortunately not, Gary, but um, I was responsible for a lot of international liaison. Okay. It was very interesting times, yep. I can't. I don't want to talk too much about what yeah. we did there, because yeah. I, I can't. And what was the, the police report thing that you did oh, there? When I was in Cowan Headquarters CID in 1981, I was approached to see if I was interested in presenting the weekly police report programme. OK. Police 5, police report, on RTHK, out with my normal duties. So we'd, yeah. we'd arrange to record it when I wasn't working. So I said, OK, I'll do it. So I used to go to the RTHK studios. Broadcast which, drive. Know, are, yeah, broadcast yeah. drive. And they'd set it up. Now, in those days, um, I would write the script on a spool, okay. give it to the producer. She would give it to the man behind the order queue, which was a self-winding thing in those days. This man usually couldn't speak English. <laughs> and so as I'm sitting there recording, looking at the auto queue, he would be winding away the ah. spool... Right. They'd either go too fast or too slow. So I'd have to go like this or go like that, or go like this or go like that. <laughs> and uh, sometimes they ran out of time to record it, so you just had to leave it in. Really? Oh, no. But other times I used to say, is this really worth doing? Because you're talking basically to an expat audience. Yes. And, be, and you'd be saying things like, so if you were in Wong Tai Sin public housing estate at 2 a.m. last Friday night and saw... A gang of men chasing a lady 
past the 7-Eleven there. Yeah. Give us a call. <laughs> in the sort of similar style to Shaw Taylor and the yeah. Police and Five then, that we used to get in the think, UK. Would there be an expat walking around a public house and sitting in the middle of Wong Tai Sin at 2am on a Friday night? Yeah. Well, probably not. But chances are. Yeah, yeah chances are. <laughs> Um, and if they did, they were probably the one that was involved in the crime. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you wouldn't hear Easy from Easy to them. spot, yeah. Yeah. So how long did you do that for then? I did it for a year. Oh, really? So yeah. it ran for a year? It ran for a year. And I guess they did get it off the Police 5 idea, did they? That, that ran in the yeah. UK at the time? Yes. Yeah. I guess they did, yeah. yeah. I'll tell you one funny incident, because um, we used to record it on a Saturday morning and used to go out Saturday night. So one Evening, I was out in Mongkok on a Saturday evening with some friends. We were going past those TV stores, like Fortress and things. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, they've usually got a bank of 300 TVs around yes. the store. Yes, So I said, come in here. Um, they followed me into the TV store, and I spoke a bit of Chinese to the guy in charge. I said, can you put on Channel 1 or 2 or whatever it was, yeah. RTHK English? And, of course, he put it on, and around the whole store, you've got 300 Pat Lawrences on screen. <laughs> And everybody uh, is looking at going, wow, wow, whole Chuck Menger. Oh, very famous, very famous. <laughs> Brilliant, excellent. <laughs> How cool is it to be able to do that? I decided that time to do something else. Yeah, yeah. I'd been away from uh, the UK for a long time, and my wife was working for an airline company based in the UK. So we went back to London, and I... After about a year there of travelling around with my wife, taking advantage of those cheap fares. Yeah, uh, When she had a good flight somewhere in the world, I'd jump on board with her. After a year of that, uh, I was offered a job by a major um, international security company based out of London, and I went to Brunei. Okay. And I spent up to two years in Brunei working on a matter involving the royal family there. But as time went on, I decided we were missing Hong Kong more. My yeah. wife is a Hong Kong lady. And we decided spending more and more time in Hong Kong over the winters. In fact, we moved back here a couple of times for long periods, living in Lantau. Now my wife has retired. We plan to move back again. Anything else, Pat, you want to cover? We... Well, I first met you, yeah. Gary. Yeah. About ten yeah. years ago when you used to come to Lantau to visit your brother. Out of interest, what, what made you come over? I've been a mate of yours for years. but Yeah, so what made me come over really was... I'd always wanted to live in Hong Kong, actually. I can't really put a, a thing on it, but since first coming here in 1986, I really just fell in love with the place. And that was before my brother lived here for 20 years. Um, so it was me, first and foremost, that wanted to come and live here. And then, blow me, four years later, he comes and moves here. <laughs> and so he lives here because his mate, uh, his mate's uncle was in Dragon Air... Oh, um, I see. So, uh, and that's how you and I know each yeah, other, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's purely because yeah. of my brother. Yeah. And we used to come over to Lantau to see my brother yeah. here in, in Moi yeah. yeah. Yeah, I used to see see yeah. a guy with a red and white scarf, <laughs> a, a gooner walking along uh, the main <laughs> road in Moi I thought, oh, right, they're coming over here now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Better than seeing a, an ex-copper with a Chelsea scarf. <laughs> And of course, yeah. Steve's now back yeah. in UK. Steve's back in the UK. And you're yeah. here. It is weird, isn't it? It's like we swap places. All right, so that just remains for me to say, Pat Lawrence, thanks very much for coming to Vibe today and talking to us. Thank you, Gary. Pleasure. 
You can listen to all our podcasts published at SoundCloud under Gary Brightman or on YouTube under Live at Vibe HK or follow the links from my website at vibehk.com. This week's shout out to a local Lantau business goes to Shea Lantau, run by Su Yin and located in the old government flats at Gan Court. They sell environmentally friendly products promoting conservation and recycling. They support local businesses by selling their products, such as Tayo Artisans and locally farmed products from places like Winnie the Farm. They're open from 10am until 4pm from Wednesday through to Sunday inclusive. Well, that's it for another week. Thanks for listening to the 15th Vibe Book and Music Shop podcast called Vibrations. I'm Gary Brightman. You get my vibe? Can you imagine what this old island must have looked like to those Dutch sailors when they first saw it? Fresh green. Like a dream of a new world. They must have held their breath. Afraid it would disappear before they could touch it.